calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. The sequel to Max Quick, Book One, The Pocket and the Pendant, produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on the Max Quick series or this podcast, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. Eleven, The Education of Master Quick Dr. Carlos Gustav, alienist, psychotherapist, and perhaps witch doctor, was seated in the lotus position, puffing on a cigar, lost deep in thought. He had hung up the suit coat of the civilized Western man, the degreed clinician, the empiricist. Although he still wore shoes, a crisp white press shirt and pants held up by suspenders, he also wore round, silver wire-frame spectacles. His John Lennon glasses, as Ian called them. His face was round and rather large. The spectacles were really too small for such a visage. They made his eyes look like little dark dots jittering inside of their twin circumferences. But those eyes were focused inward at the moment. He was a scientist, a medical doctor, yes. But he was also a medicine man, a shaman, a bender of the dream time. He began to sway as he sat there. There was something fetal about the movement, something mammalian. He was chanting, mumbling, smoking, and swaying all at the same time. The period of this human pendulum increased. Max continued to watch, mystified. Soon, Gustav's crossed legs began lifting off the ground at the height of each swing. And then he began to go up on one knee, first this side, then that. He was a human swing set, going higher and higher each time. Now his head began grazing the floor on either side. Just a little at first, then Gustav's opposite knee would leave the ground for a fraction of an inch, and he rose into the air with only the side of his head supporting his weight for just a split second each time. And when he did so, his neck seemed to be made of iron, it did not bend in the slightest. And then he was perfectly vertical on either side of his traversals. His body hung in slow motion, upside down, while Gustav stood on nothing other than his head. Each time, it was as though reality held its breath. Then finally, he ceased rocking, and he remained still, inverted, suspended perfectly upside down on the tip of his skullcap. Little puffs of smoke escaped his mouth at regular intervals. Minutes passed. Max stared with mute amazement. You may enter, Master Quick, Gustav said suddenly, startling him. Wordlessly, Max stepped inside and closed the door behind him. 
Gustav's study was dimly lit. Max noticed that the single window had been covered with a large tapestry. Their impending studies together were apparently not for spectators. Gustav had also cleared all the furniture. There was only a single large circular rug in the center, with a large candle in the center of this. Presently, Gustav rolled down off his head with a smooth motion and into a cross-legged seated position on one side of his rug and bade Max to join him. Max dropped down and sat. Gustav regarded him through his tiny silver wireframe glasses. So, how do we begin? Max asked. With a demonstration of what is possible, answered Gustav's voice from behind him. Max started. Gustav was still seated in front of him, but there was now another Gustav behind him. Max gasped, and then did a double-take to ensure both Gustavs were simultaneously present. Okay, which one of you is the real Gustav? We both are, they answered in unison. What? This is the beginning of what I'm going to teach you, the Gustav in front of him said. That limits that you believe are hard and fixed are not. Your first task is to simply understand this basic fact. There can be any number of me, said another Gustav, appearing to Max's left. Everything is always everywhere, all the time, said still one more Gustav, walking in from the right. There were now a total of four Gustavs. Location is an illusion, the seated Gustav said. The universe is fundamentally non-local at its core. Everything is everywhere. The other Gustavs abruptly vanished. You can be in several places at once because you already are. The oneness of all things dictates that this is so. The trick is to realize it deep at the bottom of your mind, not as an abstract concept, but as something you fully expect as part of your everyday reality. Max was astonished. Are you using an umphalos? Gustav looked as if he had just been insulted. Pah! Of course not! Those are mere crutches, artificial personal power. The Nuberians are hooked on them like a narcotic. When we are finished, you'll never need an umphalos again. You will be a human umphalos. Because I'll know for myself... I won't need the influence of what follows to reach the necessary state of awareness. Gustav nodded. Yes, exactly. And no is a good word for it. Far better than belief, which implies that you've merely convinced yourself of something that at some level you know isn't true. Yes, no. An Omphalos is like a tuning fork. When you get near one, your thought vibrations naturally start to resonate on a subconscious level with the vibrations inside the jewel. But once the Omphalos stone is withdrawn, its effects cease immediately. Thus, ordinary individuals can temporarily gain the reality-bending powers I will teach you to use on your own. But these stones are for the lazy, those unwilling to do the hard internal work required. And ultimately, they make you weak, reliant upon them. Well, I've had plenty of experience with Omphalos, Max said. You know, the pocket, whooshing, the singular eye, etc. I know that the jewels do work. But I still don't really get why. No, wait, hear me out, Max said, waving his hand, before Gustav launched into a windy explanation. I know that it has something to do with me somehow. It's about my state of mind. I figured out that much over the last five years on my own. For example, if I use the Amphalos bracelet Enki gave me, I can whoosh without the pocket. That's some progress, right? Gustav nodded. It is. But unfortunately, you've learned to rely on the bracelet. We'll have to break you of that habit right away. Okay, but why is it that I can use the bracelet to whoosh, 
but Ian can't. You are more receptive to the emotions, the thoughts captured in the jewel. Look at it this way. Everything in the universe is ultimately just another aspect of the one. Every rock, every drop of water, every planet, every speck of sand. It's like a worm in an apple. A bug living on the surface of the apple might see the tail and the head of the worm popping out at two different places and conclude that there were two different creatures there. But really, there's only one worm, even though it seems like two distinct things on the surface. Everything in the cosmos is like that worm. Everything is one. Max sighed. Mr. E used to talk like that, but I still don't understand. Despite his very best efforts over the five years that intervened in between when Max first encountered the pocket and now, he had tried several times to really get what made the various devices he had encountered work. In his head, he'd gone over the things Mr. E had said hundreds of times, yet he was still fairly confused. We're like waves on the ocean, Gustav explained. On one level, we are merely a wave, but on another... We are the very ocean itself. Or, if you will, we are like leaves on a tree. On one level, we are merely a single leaf, a fragile thing. This is how we usually see ourselves. But on another level, we are also the tree. A magnificent, mighty, powerful, ancient thing. More than the leaf, but at the same time, also the leaf. It just depends on where your focus is. Once you stop thinking of yourself as a leaf, and start thinking of yourself as a tree, then you can bend reality. Without an umphalos. And how do I see myself as the tree? You have to stop thinking. What? When you think, you're using your brain. That's still the leaf part of you, if you will. Your brain is entirely useless for understanding the tree part of you. So your first task is to learn how not to think. To shut off the riot of internal voices. Your ongoing, incessant internal dialogue. Max looked exasperated. I can't do that. Nobody can. Gustav eyed him. Abruptly, he rose. Then we're through. Thank you for seeing me. Gustav turned and walked to his desk. Max stared in disbelief. What? You're kidding me. No, Master Quick, I am not kidding you. We're not fooling around in here. This is a serious business. When I tell you something, be assured that I know what I am talking about, and it is for your edification. I will never tell you to do something that is impossible. If you can't invest me with your trust, even though you cannot presently understand something, then we have no basis from which to form an education. Max was stunned. He was silent for a moment and then said, I'm sorry, it won't happen again. Gustav eyed him warily. No, really, I am sorry, Dr. Gustav. I made a mistake. I see that clearly now. It won't happen again. I do trust you. Slowly, Gustav sat down again. After a moment, Gustav continued as though nothing had happened. There is a Hindu myth. It says that human consciousness began when a part of the One wandered off on its own and fragmented. These fragments then forgot that they were really the One. Essentially, the leaves forgot that they were also the tree. And thus, the universe, the great illusion, was born. Since we are all the One, our collective thoughts really do matter a great deal. People are careless with their thoughts because they do not understand this. When people focus on evil, wars, disasters, they happen. The true great wars to come that you spoke of. I can only wonder what caused them. Oh, I do not mean what mundane events came to pass, what this or that historical or economic reasons brought these conflicts about, but that would be missing the point entirely. I know that the true cause of these wars will be a mass shift in world consciousness for the worse. 
Conversely, when people focus on good things, abundance, love, happiness, they happen as well. The collective thoughts of everyone from all times are what forms the universe around us. Take the so-called laws of physics, for example. There are no real objective laws. There are only tendencies, deep grooves that have formed in the fabric of reality. Because we think gravity exists, it does. Because we think light is real, it is. But there are certain cases where we can see through the sham, lift the veil, even with empirical science. For example, aerodynamic laws say that a bumblebee with a fat bulbous body and tiny bitty wings should not be able to fly. But it can, it does. In some cases, the illusion of the world is not entirely self-consistent. So then, Max said, what we call reality is, is whatever we think it is. We're making it all up on some level, a subconscious level. Gustav nodded. Yes, you've hit on it. That sounds unbelievable. You know, unscientific. Although, after what I and Ian have been through, the boundary between what is believable and unbelievable has moved a bit. At that, Gustav smiled. <laughs> That's what I thought of first. Of course. Everybody does. It seems wrong. But that is because there is a very, very deep psychological groove in the universe enforcing this view. At first, primitive man thought that the gods controlled the universe. And then in more recent times, that there were hard and fast scientific laws that could be observed, tested, repeated. But these two supposedly polar opposite viewpoints are much more similar than you might think. For in both worldviews, control is exteriorized. Control is said to be somewhere outside of the individual. There's nothing that we can do, it is the will of the gods. Or nowadays, there's nothing we can do, the laws of physics says it's impossible. But in neither worldview is there any sense that we are all somehow doing it. We've merely traded one exterior master for another. In the process, we've abdicated our responsibility. It is only when we awaken to the fact that we are the ones in control of the dream, that we are driving it, making it real, that we are able to take hold of the dream, to change it, alter it. Dr. Gustav, I'm curious, I hope you don't mind me asking, how did you first learn about all this? Gustav smiled. At first, through my patients as a practicing clinical psychologist, here in New York as a matter of fact. It was my study of people and their circumstances and their subconscious that first caused me to suspect that such things were so. And over time, as evidence piled up, I simply could not deny it. As a scientist, an empiricist, mind you, I could not deny it. I struggled for years to find alternative explanations for certain things. You know, more acceptable explanations. Scientific explanations, something that could be peer-reviewed without a sneer of disdain. But the more I tried, the more convoluted and painful the explanations became rather than the very obvious yet more esoteric explanation. It was in the analysis of dreams of my patients that I began to see the first dim outlines. There was the uncanny wisdom of dreams, of what they diagnosed or foretold, their heavily charged content. This phenomenon was at once plain to me, as it was to my fellow psychologists. The explanation was simple, scientific. The unconscious mind picked up things that were unnoticed consciously. But as time went on, I began to notice patients whose dreams actually spilled over into the real world. There were a causal principles involved, it seemed, things which could not be explained rationally. Strange coincidences would manifest themselves. Meaningful symbols would appear coincidentally in their waking worlds, as if the waking world itself were also merely a species of dream. At first I thought these things were merely a curiosity, a statistical anomaly. But over the years, I found that even with rigorous statistical analysis, the frequency of their occurrence, they simply could not be dismissed. 
I began to suspect in my heart of hearts that the universe and consciousness simply operated in very different ways than I had been taught, that I had grown up believing. The modern Western world is not accustomed to such ideas. They have a repugnant, mystical feel to them, an ignorant, superstitious air, one that we as moderns have supposedly cast off. But as a scientist, open to honest inquiry, I felt that I must dig deeper and discover what was really going on here, despite my inhibitions as a, quote, modern man. <laughs> Little did I know, I had taken the first step of a shaman's journey. So I set out and roamed the world for many years, seeking the kind of education that could not be taught in a university. I lived with the Kalahari Bushmen. I traveled to India, where one meets men of a different epoch. I had a number of teachers all over the world, and a thousand tales I could tell you. And when it was all over, I had been initiated into many different traditions. Through the mists of time and garbled languages, I discovered distinctly common threads throughout the beliefs of all cultures, peoples, and times. And they all boil down to this. There is a world beneath the one we see, one where our consciousness is primary above matter and energy, upon which the waking world is hung like a flimsy scaffolding, and that all consciousness is connected, interpenetrated, in a word, one. Those who awaken to these truths can become rather powerful. Sometimes there are good people who use their power to help others to understand and love. These are the shamans, the saints, the adepts, the countless miracle workers that we've heard about throughout history. But other times, these awakened ones are malevolent. Their mastery of the universe makes them greedy, evil. Thus knowledge is neither good nor evil in itself. Power is only power. So do not mistake enlightenment for good. They do not necessarily go hand in hand. Max nodded slowly. Okay, well, tell me this then. If the universe is a sort of dream, and all of us together are dreaming it, then, I don't know, how do I put this? Then we are like outside of the dream, because we can't be dreaming ourselves, I don't think, right? Gustav nodded. Consciousness exists outside of the material universe. It is not part of it. Rather, it intersects it from the outside. That much, at least, is clear. Fasang, the 7th century Buddhist who founded the Hua Zen school of thought, said that the entire cosmos was implicit in all of its parts, an interlocking network of jewels reflecting each other infinitely. Everything is connected. Every place is the same place. All interpenetrates all. To demonstrate this to a student, he once hung a candle in the middle of a room of mirrors. He then placed a polished crystal in the center of this room, such that it reflected everything around it. This, he said, was the true nature of the universe. Everything reflecting everything ad infinitum. It was a circle whose center was everywhere. This vision of the cosmos as a bunch of mirrors reflected one another reminded Max. This vision of the cosmos as a bunch of mirrors reflected one another reminded Max of Casey and her talent with mirrors. He sensed a connection, but he couldn't grasp yet what it was exactly. Okay, Max said. So what you're saying is the universe is one big funhouse. Gustav coughed out a laugh of cigar smoke. <laughs> Somewhat, although I've never heard it put like that. The universe is fundamentally an illusion. Hindu mythology had a word for this illusion, Maya. The world itself is made of Maya, unreality, they said. But I have a slightly different word for it. I call it the prism. Max shuddered. The Archons had mentioned something about a prism. Was there a connection? But Max kept silent for the time being. Think of the universe, all of time, from the beginning of the universe until its end, for there is an end, as essentially recorded already, like a phonograph. That is the construct I named the prism. Now, everything that has ever happened is happening, 
or will ever happen is recorded and coded into the prism. By directing your attention at any one part of the prism, you experience one event. By moving your attention along its edge, you experience the next set of events. Your attention is like the needle on a phonograph. The movement of your attention is what we call time. Now, if you were to stop your attention at one spot on the prism and refuse to direct your consciousness elsewhere, you would experience the state of the cosmos on that spot indefinitely, which is exactly what you did with the pocket. Or you could abruptly shift your attention to a different part of the prism, which will cause you to pop into a different time, which again is exactly what those arches did to you and Ian. They forced your attention elsewhere in the prism, which caused you to quote, time travel back to 1912. Now, the prism is fixed and cannot be altered. You can move your attention forward and backwards along it, but it cannot be changed. It simply is. The prism exists as a whole. Time, reading different parts of the prism sequentially, is just a habit of consciousness, one of those grooves that have formed. And this is why the tyranny of the page is absolute. History cannot be altered. It is also why time is meaningless, why it is an illusion. Okay, Max shook his head, struggling to internalize all this. But the prism, reality, whatever. How did it first form? Where did it come from? Gustav smiled. Ah, well, this is where we leave the world of what we can know and begin to guess. There are the various creation stories, of course. Most cultures have one. We have the Hindu myth. There is another myth that says the one, having no one to play with, divided into infinite pieces and caused each to forget that it was really the one creating us. We have multiple tales from around the world that echo the same idea. But, and here Gustav smiled as though he had a secret, can I tell you what I think? Max nodded. I think that somehow, all of this, the prism, even the archons, everything, is the will of the one. It's not a mistake. We're meant to struggle back to become aware of our true nature, and it serves some purpose of the one that is not yet clear. Perhaps the one cannot perceive itself, except through shattering into a trillion monads of consciousness. Who knows? But I do not think it can be otherwise. I'm not sure that's really a comforting thought, Max said. I mean, it doesn't sound like the one is on our side. Gustav's eyebrows shot up. It's not. It's not on any side. It's on all sides. That's why it's called the one. Afterward, Max and Ian sat in their room, comparing notes from the day. Ian began by filling Max in on the conversation between Flibber and Slather. Just be careful who you say your name to, Ian said. Simbava thinks they're looking for the young you, not the you-you. I mean the old you. Well, not old, but older. You know what I mean. Anyway, don't use your real name with strangers. The Pickardens have their ears to the ground. Ian was silent for a moment and then said, You know, I've got to tell you something. I'm positively jonesing to check email right now. Max burst out laughing. Oh, go on, laugh, he insulted. But I haven't been this long without the internet since, well, probably forever. I'm freaking out. The droll symptoms. Come on. You haven't even been here a week yet, Max said, and then switched topics. You know, Michelle yelled at me today. Oh, yeah? What did you do? Left the toilet seat up. Ian laughed. Ha! Yes, that. I guess there are some constants, no matter what century you're in. Max nodded. Yeah, girls. What's with them in that toilet seat thing, anyway? What, do they think the toilet monster is going to come and get them if you don't keep the seat down? Haven't a clue, Ian said. 
What did Gustav teach you? Well, nothing practical, Max replied. It's only the first day of school, you know. I'm not really able to do anything yet. We mostly just talked. That's it? Ian asked, surprised. Maybe he wasn't missing anything exciting after all. Mm-hmm, Max replied. You know, the way Mr. E talked. But he did show me some stuff, though. And Max went on to explain how Gustav had caused several instances of himself to appear at once, and how he had stood on his head. As Max spoke, Ian sunk into English misery. He felt useless and left out. He secretly wallowed while Max described with mounting enthusiasm things he anticipated learning, things that made whooshing seem quaint in comparison. And Gustav seems confident that I can eventually do these same things, Max concluded. Then I'll have some way to defend myself against the Niberians, and I'll just be waiting for them to jump on me around every corner. More than ever, Ian felt like an assistant. Well, that capped it. He just had to find a way to contribute on his own. Later that night, Ian slipped out of the room, being very careful not to wake Max. He'd had an idea about something he'd noticed earlier. It might be a key to how he could contribute to this little cabal. He crept quietly along the floorboards. He was very conscious of not squeaking the old wood. But then he laughed at himself. This wasn't an old house here. In 1912, it was a new house. It was only the style that seemed old to his eyes. But it was a bizarre house. There was far more to it than met the eye. He had counted four levels already. The topmost levels were Madame Romani and Dr. Gustav each had suites. The third floor held several large rooms, including the library, where he and Max had first emerged from the book, and Dr. Gustav's study. Ian had only gained a peek in there, but from that brief glimpse, he knew that it held all kinds of oddlings. A feathered spear on the wall, several bone necklaces, a giant colored wheel that looked Asian, and a creepy skull, and lots of books, very old books kind of books Ian pictured being on the shelves of the library at Alexandria. Then there was the second floor. Here was where the other bedrooms were. His and Max's room, Michelle's room, some Bava's suite, and Faliero's room. And finally, the first floor, which boasted several parlors, a front room, a large kitchen with three great ovens and miles of cupboards. There was another level below this, but he had not been there. He suspected a wine cellar, shabby unused servants' quarters, and other basement-type things. But what he did not know about was a curious door on the third floor that seemed to lead nowhere. From where it was positioned, looking at the outside of the house, Ian knew that it should simply open into a brick wall. Yet, when he opened the door, he was not at all surprised that it did not. Instead, there was a very long staircase stretching upwards. He could not see how far up it reached. The light did not throw that far, but it seemed several stories, at least. Go or go back, he mused. It was spooky, no doubt about that. But he was British. Buck up and cheerio. Righto, then. Go, of course. He laughed to himself nervously. He closed the door behind him and crept up the stairs, stepping as lightly as he could manage. He clicked on his pocket flashlight and shone it ahead of him. Still no end to the stairs. It suddenly reminded him of the impossibly long staircase up to the Pyramid of the Arches. He padded up them at half a jog. But then, he felt the stairwell begin to shift. At first, he thought it was simply giving way. He had found old rotted wood, after all, and he was about to plunge down into God knows what. But then he realized the entire corridor was rotating, turning on its side, almost soundlessly. Oh, bloody, bloody hell! He braced himself to fall. But gravity held, 
Even though the stairway was turning on its side, and now upside down, he was still firmly rooted in the same spot. The motion stopped. Ian suddenly realized that by continuing to climb up, he was now going down, under the very ground beneath New York. Well, he'd come this far. Stepping up, or down, the stairs as fast as he could manage, he came at last to a single iron door. It looked like a cell door to a prison. Gritting his teeth, he opened it. It came free. It was not locked either. And when he shone his light in, he saw that it was a medium-sized storage room. It was filled to the ceiling with Niberian artifacts. Ian gasped in amazement. Some of them he recognized immediately. There were two whispering stones. There were many sets of centurion armor, their dull, old, unpolished golds still giving back a fine shine. Several umphalos rested in brass settings, and one sat on a velvet cushion. Then there were other things he had never seen before, but their style also indicated Nuberian origin. There was an ornate black helm with a red diamond in the forehead, and writing tablets of some sort, not stone, but white and fine, like the walls of a sky chamber. A gauntlet made of emeralds. Several stoppered oval decanters of a slow, silvery liquid like mercury. And there were several boxes that appeared to be jewelry cases. He moved towards these last. Plucking the clasp open on the first box, he popped the lid with his penlight. It was filled with rings. They were old and dusty. Some of them even looked rusted and cobwebbed, but many were still clearly fine. Some looked like little silver wreaths of laurel, wrapping a deep green smoky emerald pearl. Ian eyed one of these presently. Ah, oh, now this looks interesting. Maybe it was something he could understand, something he could use. In this 1912 world without computers, technology, or science, he had nothing to contribute to the hidden hand. He was the broken finger. But Nuberian technology, well, that was his specialty. He, he alone out of all of them, could fly a sky chamber. He could understand Sumerian, the first tongue of the black-headed ones, the language of the Nuberians. And here, excuse me if I'm mistaken, but I'm pretty sure I'm not, right in front of him is a whole bloody bunch of Nuberian technology. Why, of all the people in the house, he was the only one who could best comprehend this treasure trove. His lip curled. Romani had hidden this from him. All this stuff. Why, didn't she trust him? Was that it? A sudden rash greed consumed him. There were weapons here, damn it. Knowledge that could be used to fight the Nuberian Nest. It wasn't right. By God, it wasn't right. Romani should have brought him up here right away. She should have realized that he could probably make all this stuff work. He had a right to it, more than anyone in this house. They had all their talents, but he had the ability to understand these artifacts. Ian reached out and grabbed one of the rings. He slipped it on his finger. For a moment, nothing happened. Ian admired the emerald jewel adorning his hand. The silver metal leaves swallowed the deep green pearl and glinted a dull off-white color. The gem itself was dead as the eyeball of a rotting shark. But then he felt a sharp jab of pain in his finger, just under the ring, like he had been pricked by a tiny thorn. He sucked air through his teeth in a jolt of surprise and said, Ow! What the hell? He thought that the sliver of pain would quickly subside, but it did not. Instead, it only throbbed more 